That's uh, page 1,222 in the Pew Bible. 1,222, John chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can you enter a second time? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Thus far the reading of God's word may add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, we live in a culture that views the idea of being born again as evidence of emotional weakness and instability. It's associated with people who are counted uh, by others as losers, you know, alcoholics, drug addicts prison inmates, and other scoundrels and misfits that had some kind of emotional crisis experience and, and then turned to religion, religious fanaticism and became born again. Society views the born-again type as someone who has a, a moral collapse and needs some kind of external uh, moral structure and support. The born-again type supposedly uses religion as a crutch to lift him out of ruin and despair. The term born-again Christian is not, all, uh, is not at all respectable in uh, normal society. It's viewed as ultra-conservative, uh, fringe fundamentalism, fundamentalism, some kind of dogmatism that is contrary to the the true spirit of Christianity or a generous and kinder uh, way of life. This was exhibited uh, somewhat in uh, President uh, George H. Bush, the first President Bush, when he was running for president. He uh, was asked 
if he was born again. That was a, a question that's been put to presidential candidates ever since uh, Jimmy Carter made a, a big deal of it. Anyway, uh, George H. Bush was asked if he was uh, born again, and he said rather smugly, once is enough, thank you very much. He must have taken some grief for that because uh, later on he was asked the same question and, and then he answered a little bit differently. He said, well, it's complicated. And that's all he would say on the matter. However, his, his son, the second uh, President uh, Bush, George W. Bush, uh, uh, he readily acknowledges being born again. But then he fits society's stereotype because when he speaks about his born-again faith, he talks about it as that which saved him from becoming an alcoholic. You know, these uh, losers have to turn to born-again Christianity in order to uh, find some uh, help. Well, I trust that your idea of being born again is not that of our society, that you have a, a better view of what it means to be born again or a better view of what we call the doctrine of regeneration. But because we live in a society that disdains born-again theology, you and I are tempted to downplay its importance and downplay its significance in our witness to the world. And to counter that temptation, we need to listen to Jesus and hear what he has to say about the importance of being born again. For Jesus, born-again Christianity is a redundancy. The two are synonymous. You can't have one without the other. And this is confirmed by the history of Christianity for the last 2,000 years, where you find uh, that the, the doctrine of regeneration and being born again is it's in all the hymn books, it's in all the prayer books, it's in all the confessions and catechisms. It's not something strange, new, or weird to the Christian faith, even though many in the world, and sadly some in the church, uh, treat it as if it were. And not only does Jesus insist on the necessity of the new birth, but he also shows us in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, he shows us that it's not just for what society would call losers. He says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus was a Pharisee which means he was uh, no moral failure. He was a very righteous, upright man, a practitioner of a religion of high moral structure. He was a member of the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, who were the 70 elite of the Jewish faith and the covenant community. Uh, he was uh, a man of good character, a good reputation, and a, a generous Man, not, not a proud bigot like some of his pharisaical uh, counterparts. You know, he comes to Jesus and he calls Jesus rabbi. Uh, that was a term of respect that was reserved for teachers in Israel who had gone to the best rabbinical schools. Jesus had gone to no rabbinical school, and yet Nicodemus uh, condescends to... to 
respect Jesus and, and call him rabbi. And he goes to Jesus because he's convinced that nobody can do the things that Jesus is doing unless God is with him. So he's, he's more open-minded and generous in spirit than many of the other Pharisees. So he's a, a respected leader. He's a, a teacher in Israel. He's a very moral man, upright and, and godly from every outward appearance. And to him... Jesus says, you must be born again. Being born again is not just for the woman in the next chapter, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman who had had five husbands and was living in a, uh, 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 an illegitimate relationship uh, when Jesus met her. It's not just for people like her. It's for people also who have it all together, seemingly, as far as the world is concerned. Well, with this in mind, I want to consider with you uh, three things. Uh, why do we need to be born again, according to our text? What's the, the reason for it? What reason does Jesus give that we need to be born again? What is it to be born again? And uh, then uh, thirdly, how can you know that you have been born again? First of all, then, why do we need to be born again? Well, our text gives the reason twice. First of all, it says in verse 3 that you need to be born again to see the kingdom of God. And then in verse 5, it says you need to be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God. You need to be born again to see it, to, to, to know it, and, and to uh, also to enter it. Seeing it and entering it, you won't uh, be able to do either if you are not be born, not been born again. Now, uh, let's just stop a moment and think about the kingdom of God. What is it to, to see the kingdom of God? What is it to, to enter into the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is the realm of God's saving power. It's God reclaiming this world for himself. It has fallen under the power of Satan. Satan considers himself the ruler of this world. He is a usurper in that regard. He has no natural right to it, but he has claimed it as his own. You remember when he tempted Jesus, he said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus knew that Satan had no right to those kingdoms and that it was his father's will to give to Jesus all the kingdoms, but not by bowing down to the usurper. But God is going to take these kingdoms back to himself. And he, he did it in a, a preliminary way in the Old Testament by choosing a man out of the sinful world, out of paganism. He chose a man and promised to make that man a great nation. He said, kings will come from you. I'm going to make a kingdom from you. And indeed, uh, God drew out of the earth a nation, a people for himself, and he made them great, especially under King David and King Solomon. But that was only a sign. God made promises of a greater kingdom to come, a greater son of David who would uh, usher in a kingdom that would fill the whole earth. You know, when Daniel was in Babylon, he served a king who had a dream, a dream of a giant statue. The giant statue represented four successive kingdoms, but in reality it, it represented all the kingdoms of the earth. And uh, in that dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw a rock, not cut by human hands, not of human origin, 
And if not of human origin, then of what origin? Well, divine origin. A rock not cut, not cut by human hands that came and smashed that statue, blew away all the kingdoms of this earth. And then that rock grew to be a mountain that filled the whole earth. That mountain replaced the kingdoms of this world with the kingdom of God. A a vision that is being fulfilled even now as Jesus, the rock not cut by human hands, came announcing the kingdom is at hand and the kingdom is within you. And if you see me casting out demons, you know that the kingdom has arrived because the kingdom is about getting rid of Satan and reclaiming this earth for God and establishing it as a, a kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy. You know, what, what God promises is what, uh, what communism and socialism also want. They, want. they want justice. They want peace. They want uh, a, 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 a good world. It really, communism and, and socialism are a, a Christian heresy because they, they seek to accomplish what God promises by human means, without God and by human strength. When God says it's not by power or might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And if you want to see the kingdom, if you want to enter the kingdom, it is by spiritual renewal, not by political renewal, but by spiritual renewal. And by the work of God, he will accomplish it. He will give it of his grace and spirit. He gives us a down payment of it in this life. Uh, and uh, the kingdom is within you and consists of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the down payment. But the fullness is that inheritance which is being kept for us in heaven, an, an, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, that cannot fade away, that will be revealed when Christ comes again. That's the coming kingdom. The kingdom is here now in in preliminary form and is coming in its fullness when Christ comes again. And to see that and to enter into that, you need to be born again. We read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, He has caused us to be born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. There, Peter is saying, the new birth is our entrance, our entrance into that inheritance. We get the down payment of it now. We get the fullness of it when Christ comes again. In Matthew, 28, or Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus says that at the regeneration of all things, when he sits on his glorious throne, then the twelve also will sit on twelve thrones. And any who have left house or land or family for his sake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Jesus Christ is coming and he's going to regenerate everything. And then we will enter into the fullness of our salvation. And that begins now with the new birth. Now, Nicodemus' understanding of the kingdom was not this understanding. He misunderstood the prophecies of the Old Testament and thought, uh, as some dispensationalists even still believe today, that uh, God is going to restore uh, a kingdom confined to Palestine, to that, uh, the Middle East territory that God gave to Abraham, that that wasn't symbol, a symbol of something greater to come, but uh, is thing in itself that will has to be the temple has to be rebuilt and that sort of thing that's what what uh, what uh, Nicodemus was looking for but uh, Jesus uh, 
uh, is pointing him beyond this and, and teaching us that there is much more to the kingdom than what they were uh, considering at that time. Now, all of this was uh, a bit of an affront to Nicodemus. He responds with incredulity, asking a ridiculous question about uh, attempt, uh, without really attempting to understand. He had come to, uh, uh, to learn more from Jesus, but he, he takes offense because Nicodemus is counting on his first birth. It, it, it has served him well. It has propelled him to the top of his field. It has carried him uh, into the service of God, he has thought, and uh, put him in, uh, in a good place among the people. Uh, he doesn't want to give that up. Why does he have to be born again? That would be to say that all that I've accomplished, all that I have done is for nothing. And so he, he ridicules Jesus and uh, uh, rejects this idea of being born again. Which leads us to consider, what is it that he is rejecting here? What is it that he, he, he can't seem to grasp? What is the new birth? Well, first of all, it is a birth. And a birth is the coming of life into the world. Now, I know because of uh, abortion, uh, as Christians, we want to emphasize that, that uh, human life begins at conception. But even though that is true and life within the womb is worthy of our protection, nevertheless, we still speak, and the Bible speaks, of birth as our coming into the world. Before our birth, our life is hidden. Uh, we can't see it. Uh, but at birth, that's when you measure the beginning of your life. If you're telling your life story, you begin with the day of your birth. Uh, that's when you received your name. That's when you received your identity. That's when uh, people welcomed you into the world at the time of your birth. It's a new beginning. A birth means a new life, a new identity, a new person. And therefore, we shouldn't understand the new birth as merely being uh, a patchwork job on something old, as if uh, there were a few problems and we went to talk to a counselor and he helped us work through some problems and now that we've been straightened out and, and now we have a new life. Or it's not like uh, you went on a diet and, and lost 100 pounds and now you feel like a new person. It's much more radical than that. It's a, it's a whole new life. Sinclair Ferguson, in his book, Children of the Living God, says that to be born again is, quote, to come to share in the risen life and power of Jesus Christ. To come to share in the risen life and power of Jesus Christ. Christ's risen life, his risen power, we come to share in it. That's what he says is the new birth. Now, he says to understand that, you need to understand, first of all, that the resurrection of Christ was for him a new birth. The resurrection of Christ was for him a new life. New life from the dead was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We, we hear that in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, where it says concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead. Declared to be the Son of God with power by His resurrection from the dead. Uh, this idea is also conveyed in one of Paul's sermons in Acts 13, 
where he uh, speaks of God fulfilling the promise uh, by raising Jesus as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He connects the resurrection of Christ with the words from Psalm 2, today I have begotten you. Uh, This is a new beginning, a new beginning for Jesus, his resurrection. He had always been the God-man from the time of his first birth, from the time of his conception. He was the God-man, Jesus Christ. But his whole life, from the moment of conception to his uh, burial in the tomb and until just before uh, Easter Sunday morning, he was under condemnation. He was sentenced to death. He bore the guilt of sin, not his own sin, but our sins and iniquities were laid on him. He carried our griefs. He he bore our sorrows. And God laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he was under condemnation and under death. But then on Easter Sunday morning, he was resurrected. And he threw off the, uh, the shrouds of death and came to new life and is declared to be the Son of God with power, the power of a new life. Now it is that new life that we come to share in when we are born again. Again, that passage of First uh, uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 3, He has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Our being born again is through His resurrection. That's made clear also in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 6. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which He has loved us, when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, has made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him. Our being made alive, our being regenerated, our being born again is with Christ, raised up with Him. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. To be born again, says, uh, says Ferguson, is to come to share in the risen life and power of Jesus Christ. I've always taught my uh, young catechism students, uh, when I had them uh, as early as the third grade, uh, the definition of regeneration as the implanting of new life in dead hearts. And that's a good a good definition for third graders, but we need to see that it's not just the implanting of a principle of life. <laughs> it's the implanting of Christ's resurrected life in dead hearts. That's what de- regeneration is. The implanting of Christ's resurrection life power into our hearts is what it means to be born again. Another passage that makes reference to this and also to the kingdom is Colossians 1, verse 27, where Paul is speaking of the riches of the glory of this mystery, meaning this gospel. And he says, he summarizes it, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, Christ's life implanted in you. 
Christ's life invigorating you. You were dead, but you were made alive with Christ. You were raised up in Him. The gospel is about Christ in you. And then he equates that with the hope of glory. And what is the hope of glory? Well, the hope is that we will be participants in the glorious kingdom. And so Paul is saying here also that that the Christ in you, which is brought about by the new birth, is the means by which we see the kingdom. It is the means by which we enter the kingdom, the glorious kingdom of God. To be born again is to come to share in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. That's what Nicodemus doesn't uh, seem to grasp or understand as yet, at least. Jesus goes on to talk more about the, the new birth when he says it is by water and the Spirit. And here he's making reference to that passage that I read to you earlier from Ephesians 36. I will sprinkle you with clean water and I will put my spirit within you. Jesus is promising cleansing and renewal. The new birth is by water and spirit. The new birth is cleansing and the new birth is renewal. That's what it is, according to Jesus. Uh, It signals uh, a new beginning, a new birth that cleanses and renews the cleansing and renewal that has been promised by the Old Testament prophets. Jesus also says a couple more things about the new birth. He, uh, he says uh, no one has this from their first birth. It's not automatic when you are born into this world, even if you're born into a covenant family. He says flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to spirit. That's why he says you have to be born again. You know, this was already hinted at in the first chapter of John's Gospel where he says, to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God who were born, born not of a human decision or of a father's will, but born of God. That's the new birth, a new birth that comes from God, that comes from above. And uh, it's not to be confused with the first birth. And therefore, just because you are alive doesn't, uh, and born into a covenant family doesn't mean that you have been born again. This, this is a new birth. It says to Nicodemus, uh, a well-established member of the covenant community, uh, your first birth isn't sufficient. Flesh gives birth only to flesh. You need to be born again of the Spirit, of water and the Spirit. And the second thing that Jesus says there is that the wind blows wherever it wills, and so is the Spirit, meaning you can't make this happen. Nobody can uh, uh, regenerate themselves. You can't make yourself be born again. You can't make your children be born again as much as we would like to uh, have that power uh, over our children. We are dependent upon the sovereign movement of the Spirit in this regard, which leads to the third thing that we want to consider. How How can you know if you have been born again? How can you know if you have been born again? Uh, well, Nicodemus, I think, is, uh, is concerned about that as well because he asked the second time, uh, how can this be? 
And uh, Jesus shows him how it can be by referring him to an incident from the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 21, where we read about how the people grumbled and murmured against God and against Moses. And because they were grumbling against God and Moses, God sent fiery serpents among them to uh, bite them. And uh, these were poisonous uh, serpents, and when uh, the people were bitten, they began to to die. Well, when the the people saw that these serpents were killing them off, they humbled their hearts and they cried out to Moses for help, and they pleaded to, to, that Moses would uh, uh, save them and that Moses would intercede on their behalf so that God would save them. And Moses did that. He he prayed, and the Lord answered that prayer. And the Lord said to Moses in Numbers 21, verses 8 and 9, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. The serpent was on a pole, lifted up so that people could see it. And, and Jesus says that the Son of Man will be lifted up. And when people see Jesus, when people look to him the way the Old Testament Israelites look to that serpent on the pole, then they will be saved. They will be uh, uh, born again. Uh, now, we have to ask ourselves, in the wilderness, who, who looked at the serpent? Who was moved and motivated to go look at that picture of, of death on a pole. The serpent represented death. The serpents were biting them and uh, killing them, and so the serpent represents death. Death is figured on the pole. Uh, who looked at that? Well, the people who were motivated to look at that were the people who knew that they had been bitten. They knew that uh, the bite was deadly, that they had no hope in themselves. There was no poultice that they could put on the wound. There was no uh, herb that they could take to uh, counter the effects of this poison. They were as good as dead unless they went and looked. They had to acknowledge that they had sinned against God. <laughs> Uh, that they were uh, had come under the condemnation of God and that they had to look to the means that God provided. God provided this serpent on a pole and it, it took humility to acknowledge that they could only get help from God. But if they were willing to acknowledge that they could only get help from God and went and looked at the serpent on the pole, death on a pole, then they would be healed. It was the act of looking was a a confession, an acknowledgement. Yes, we have come under the condemnation of God. We deserve to die. I'm not going to shake my fist at God. I'm going to humble myself and go to the means that God has appointed for my healing. And so they came in faith and looked at the serpent on the pole and were healed. So all who look to Jesus in acknowledgement of their sin look to him for healing, can be assured that he will heal you. He will cleanse you. He will renew you. He will give you that new birth. In fact, the fact that you have come to the conclusion that you need help is evidence that you have been born again. And so the question that I would put to you today, to you who are here, to you who are listening on the Internet or on the radio, do you know that you have been bitten by a poisonous serpent? 
Do you know that you have the, the venom of that old serpent, the devil, running through your nature? Adam and Eve were tempted of the devil. He insinuated themselves, himself into their minds. He injected his deadly poison with his, his questions and his assertions, his lying assertions. His challenges of the truth of God's word. He, he injected his poison in their minds and poisoned their nature. And their nature became corrupt and they bore, for, bore children with corrupt nature who continue to listen to Satan and let his poison tempt us and lead us astray. Do you acknowledge that, that you've been bitten and that there is evil within you? So that you cry out like the Apostle Paul at the end of Romans chapter 7. <laughs> you know, the good that I want to do, I don't do it. And the evil that I don't want to do, that's what I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Do you acknowledge and confess that you have the poison of the serpent in your nature? And that you have no help in yourself to, to get rid of it. There's no remedy on earth for you to use to heal yourself. Well, if you so acknowledge and confess, and you look to Jesus alone to save you, then be assured, he who believes, says the Scriptures, has eternal life. The new life is in you. You have been born again. Faith in Jesus Christ is the fruit of that birth. And the desire now to live for Him is evidence of that new birth. You can be assured you have been born again if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing your sin and looking to Him alone for the forgiveness of sins. What a glorious God we have who put Jesus up on the cross. And there put him to death so that we see death on the cross. We see what our sins deserve. Falling not on us, but falling on him who died in our place. Who suffered the penalty that we deserve so that we might be forgiven. So that we might be healed. Thanks be to God for Jesus on the cross. And that we can look to him and see him and be healed. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that we would not be hindered by our society's disdain for the new birth to celebrating the fact that indeed you have given us a new birth through the resurrection of Christ from the dead by implanting his resurrection life and the power of that life in our hearts to reclaim us from death and to give us new life, a life that we can now live to your honor and glory. May we rejoice in that new life and share the good news with those around us. We pray in Jesus' name.